Today we're talking about acts and radical welcome. So join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for your many blessings. We thank you for your provisions in our life. We thank you for the way in which you bring um, good out of bad as we look at uh, brothers and sisters still um, struggling in Texas and, and trying to find a way out and truly all around the world. God, our hearts break for those who are hurting and we trust Jesus. The reason why we come to you is because we know that you can bring good even out of all of this. And so we come with hearts often heavy, but also with hope. And we hope today that we will be changed um, through the teaching of your word and that we will also continue to be agents of your love in this world, that our lives would be shaped by your deep love for us, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so in the book of Acts, towards the end, uh, the Apostle Paul has a series of trials. Uh, trials and tribulations, for lack of a better word. And beginning in Acts chapter 21 and then 22 and 23 and then following, uh, Paul is going to get into trouble. So for those of you who may not be as familiar with our Paul story, um, in the book of Acts, uh, the early followers of Jesus have started this movement. They've become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's resurrected, that he is alive indeed, and they want to um, go and spread forth this message. So they are doing that, and in that process, this guy named Paul, who is, he says himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a a Hebrew of all Hebrews, um, that he studied at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel, that he is studied and learned in his zealousness for God, he has determined that followers of the way, followers of Jesus, must be persecuted. So he goes about that huge mission of trying to sort of just kill and persecute the followers of the way because he's very concerned about this false teaching he thinks is out there about this God that died and rose again. And in that process... Paul has this experience on the Damascus Road. Remember, bright, shining light, and he gets blinded, and he repents, and he decides to also join those early Jewish followers of the way. Um, This totally makes sense for Paul. All of the disciples are Jewish. The people that he is persecuting are Jewish, and they are all um, in this process together. So they're figuring this out. Now, in this journey, then, Paul finds himself surprised by the fact, and so does Peter and others, that Gentiles start coming into this movement. And he's had this very successful um, multi-city missionary journey throughout the Greco-Roman world in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and, and, um, and then also in Greece. He's not yet in Rome. He'll do that at the end of the book. And, and so he's had this movement, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem, where really the head of the church is. And James better known by his family as Jacob, Yaakov. But Yaakov, Jacob, is the head of the church in Jerusalem, and they've been communicating. He knows about Paul, um, Paulus. His, his uh, Hebrew name is Shaul, Saul, and his Greco-Roman name is Paulus. Very common um, for people to have more than one name. Um, and so he's now on his way back, and he's going to have um, a conversation with James, with Yaakov, with Jacob when he gets back in. So when Paul and Luke come back to Jerusalem. Um, In Acts 21, this is what happens. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters greeted us warmly, and the next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders who were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he's Paul, a Jew, still identifying as a Jew, 
has been spreading this message about this Jewish rabbi, Messiah, Savior, and he's shocked that Gentiles are believing. And so he's, he's going back and he's telling James, hey, this is this crazy stuff that's been happening. And when the, the early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, of James's community, the synagogue there, when they all hear this, they praise God. This is amazing, Paul. This is amazing. They say to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed here, right? And they are also zealous for the Torah, right? They are all here too. So, so this explosion of the way of Jesus has been, has been moving powerfully in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in the Greco-Roman world extended. But there's a problem. So there's this rumor that's floating around, Paul, they tell him in Acts 21, These people have been informed that you're teaching all of the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, that you're telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So what shall we do? Because they're certainly going to hear that you've come. So here's here's what we're going to do. Do what we tell you. We have four men with us who've made a vow. This is a very common practice in first century Judaism, and they're going to make a Nazarite vow, a vow, a period of purification where you allow your hair to grow and you sort of set everything focused to God. You, you don't partake in any uh, wine, no fermented drink, you don't eat meat, and you just focus on God. Now, there were some people called to be lifelong Nazarites, like uh, John the Baptist, Yochan uh, on the Immerser for another name, or let's say uh, Elijah perhaps, and Samson for sure. Like they have lifelong Nazarite vows, but others would just take it for a time being. So there's four people in that community of Jerusalem in this early church that are still, note this, going to the temple, making sacrifices, making vows as followers of Jesus, as Jewish followers of Jesus. Got it? Because I think in my head growing up, I kind of had this like, Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and everyone's like, all right, now we're Christian. And that's not how this happens at all. Okay, so they tell Paul, take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved, and then everyone will know that there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Anybody think that, oh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do the works of the law anymore, and now you can just, you know, anybody taught that stuff growing up? Okay, great. So that's apparently not true for all of these Jewish followers of Jesus, at, at least very truly right in the beginning. They're all still keeping these passages, these customs, these sacrifices, and it's deeply important to them, and it is meaningful to them as followers of Jesus. Okay? Jewish followers of Jesus. Any questions about that? Y'all hanging okay? All right. So as for the Gentile believers, we've already written about this. This is Acts 15, right? We've written to them about our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So we know what the Gentiles are supposed to do. They don't need to do this. Gentile followers of Jesus, you don't need to do this. Jewish followers of Jesus, yes, you do. That's, that's how they're running this organization of these new followers away. So As we go then through the rest of what's going to happen, let's just hang for a minute. This isn't a new problem. The prophecy that Gentiles will come in and that Gentiles have been coming in is not new to this very moment. So way back in Paul's first 
uh, repentance experience, the Lord says to Ananias, go because Paul is the chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And this is what we're going to see as a fulfillment at the end of the book of Acts. The circumcised believers, this is Acts chapter 10, with Peter who were, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. So back in Acts 10, that's the first time we start to see the Gentiles are starting to join in. And this is in um, Jaffa and Yafo and on the coastline with uh, Cornelius and all of his household who become saved. But it's a shock. They're like, whoa, whoa, Gentiles are coming in. Whoa, they're experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit. Whoa, we didn't know that was possible. The apostles and the believers, here's Acts 11, throughout Judea heard that Gentiles were also receiving the word of God. And when they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, yes, even us Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, if you'll go back again with me just briefly in Acts 15, you'll remember that one of the conflicts was when these Gentiles come to a saving and understanding belief that Jesus is Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, that he is the Messiah, when that happens, do they need to get circumcised? And so they send back to James, to Yaakov, to Jacob, and they said, and they're like, no. You don't need to get circumcised. You need to abstain from blood. You need to abstain from sexual immorality. You need to do these other things, but you don't need to get circumcised, which all the Gentile men were like, phew. All right, good to know. Okay, yes, we're in. All right, we will. Now, in, I just want to note, like in the Second Temple Jewish period, it was possible to be what was called a God-fearer. If anyone's read through in your text, you've come across the framing God-fearer. That was somebody who took on all of the beliefs of Judaism and did everything up unto the uh, snip-snip. So they would um, not fully convert to Judaism, but they were God-fearers, like sort of big fans, right, and participatory, but they didn't take on the full yoke of a full conversion, uh, which was possible either for children, for, for people, for Gentiles to come on in. But this is this question, right, of how do Gentiles come in, and that's what this early followers of the way of Jesus are trying to figure out. Now, why are Gentiles coming in? Well, because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. God tells Abraham way back in Genesis, the nations on earth will be blessed because of you and your people. And then as God pulls his people out of Egypt, he gives them freedom from slavery, but freedom for a purpose. And he sets them into that place and space so they can be God's holy priesthood, God's chosen nation, so that they might be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. And that can sound maybe for some ears today in our 21st century setting, wow, how arrogant that they think that they can be a light to the rest of the nations. To which we would say, it's not arrogance to turn on a light in a dark room. It's common sense. So we are deeply grateful for the fact that part of God's mission through the people of Israel was to bring a light to the world. And uh, I could talk about that for days, about how all the many ways that happened, so I won't. I'm going to set it aside, but it's very wonderful and exciting. Now, also, of course, that verse is used by the gospel writers to point to the ministry and work of Jesus, isn't it? And we see in the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, Gentiles also starting to come on in. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to Nazareth and he sits in the synagogue that he grew up in and he stands to read the text. By the way, if you ever see on, uh, you know, shows like Easter and Christmas time, they always show Jesus like reading this way. And it just drives me insane because that is not how a Torah scroll goes, all right? This isn't your Greco-Roman. This is Caesar. This is a demonstration. 
goes this way, everybody, just this way, okay? Um, so Luke 4, Jesus stands up, reads this text from Isaiah, the good news is upon me to proclaim the good news to the, to the poor, the oppressed, and he's like, and today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like the shortest sermon ever. He sits down to preach that part. And right afterwards, people are like, that's great. That's good news. And they all love it until he says, oh, and by the way, when Elijah was here, he didn't find anybody faithful in this place, so he had to go to the Gentiles in the north. Now, that makes people mad. So that's when they're like, okay, we're going to push him out of town. And you'll remember he gets uh, pushed up towards that precipice in Nazareth, but then walks through the crowd, which I used to think was like, maybe he was like uh, humming or something. It was like this whir about him. He could just pass through the crowd. But no, what in, in Jewish law, it's that you don't, you're not able to just, kill somebody. That's not how it goes. You have to have people that go, some, he, they, this person did something wrong, and when they get to the place where they would do the thing, well, he didn't really do anything wrong, so he can pass through because there's no one there that would suggest that whatever he said was, was worthy of that type of response. However, we should note that the thing that's upsetting within his own family, within his home, hometown, is this notion that Gentiles are coming in. How are they coming in? How will they be found to be the most faithful? Now, even in Jesus' life and ministry, you'll recall in Luke chapter 15, tax collectors and sinners are all gathering around to hear Jesus, but Pharisees, who, of whom Jesus is most aligned theologically, and I, I don't like that that's such a bad word so often, right? But the Pharisees that are there um, and the teachers of the Torah muttered, hey, this man's welcoming with sinners and eating with them which is a problem because when you're eating with somebody, there's a whole bunch of cultural context for that. Now, the gospel writers don't have to tell you this because they presume that you, the reader, understand these cultural contexts. But for those of us maybe who've had some experience outside of a Western experience, sitting and eating with somebody is a very powerful experience. And particularly in the Middle East, to sit and go and eat with somebody is to invite that person to your home to share not just food and how we touch that food together and are you clean? Did you wash your hands after you went to the marketplace? Did you wash your hands before you touched this and this? All of those kinds of conversations about how we maintain our, um, our religious purity for the love of God. I, I think a lot of times uh, some of us hear some of these rules as uh, legalistic, zealous religious followings. I hear a deep love for God and a deep desire to please God. Now, you might want to fuss on whether or not you feel like it's something that gives you life, and that's fine, but, but I hear people who are trying to love God, and now they're a little bit concerned because here are all these people, these ragtag bunches of folks that are showing up, and Jesus is sitting and eating with them. There is a discussion amongst the rabbis. Does anyone remember when um, Abraham welcomes the three visitors into his tent, Genesis 18? So, so right before that, at the end of 17, Abraham has had major surgery the surgery that the Gentiles are looking to avoid. And so he is already sitting in his tent, in the opening of his tent, in the heat of the day, just recovering from major surgery. And he sees three visitors walking this way, and he jumps up and runs, maybe a little like this, and, um, and welcomes them in and throws a big party. The rabbis talk about how did, how did Abraham see them coming. And he said, well, all four sides of his tent were open. He was ready to receive visitors and welcome them in from all four directions, the north, south, east, and west. And some of you, I see how you practice hospitality in this world, and all four sides of your tents are open. You welcome people in, and you bring them into this community. You bring them into your homes. 
And that's still, by the way, something my friends in Israel will say to me today. I'll say, hey, you know, I'm coming to town. Let's say all four sides of our tent are open, which means I can come and I can sit and I can have and share a meal together. Today, when I go to Israel, if I don't, if they find out I'm in country and I don't stop and sit and have a long meal, there's trouble, right? Um, and if I have been invited into their home, now, I, now we're family. It's, it's a very deep connection. So when they're upset that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, it's not just like, oh, he's having this meal with them, and isn't that kind of awkward? Or maybe, you know, the, the food might not be exactly prepared the way that it needs to be. It's that he's sharing fellowship with them. He's, he's sitting with them. They're becoming friends, family with one another. There's an intimacy intended in that. Jesus' response to their complaint is, let me tell you a story. And he tells them a single parable. He tells them the parable of lost things. And he tells them this parable in all one sitting. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. Plural. Lost sons. And as he goes out, he says, you know, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, you lose one, you go and catch the other, right? The, the person, the shepherd finds it, puts the sheep on its shoulders, goes home, tell all his friends and neighbors together, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. Question, who is the party for? Sheep don't wear party hats. Who's the party for? The shepherd, right? I found the thing that I lost. I'm so happy that I found it. I'm throwing myself a party. I'm rejoicing. I am glad because I went out. I found that sheep. I picked that sheep up and I brought it home. And I don't know if you've ever tried to pick up a sheep or if you've tried to find one that was lost. I mean, they just kind of lose their mind. It's not, they just follow the next sheep bum in front of them. They can't find their way home. So this, tell me, what does the sheep do in order to be found? Nothing. Right? It's a sheep. It doesn't have GPS. It doesn't have find my friends. It can't look, I mean, maybe it can bleat. But, there, this guy's got a hundred sheep, which is quite a bit. It's a huge flock, and has to go and do all the work of finding and bringing home. Now, the same is true of the woman with the coin, right? So, and Jesus says, by the way, they're the same way, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. The same is with the woman with the coin. The coin is an inanimate object. It cannot do anything to be found. It can do less than the sheep could do, right? It can just lie there. It might reflect the light. Now, when the woman finds the coin, she's thrilled. She says, let's have a party, right? And we will rejoice because this has been found. Now, Jesus continues the story. There's a man who has two sons. The younger one says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divides his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had for a distant country, and he squandered off in wild living. So the youngest son has gone to his dad and said, I wish you were dead because I want the thing that I'm going to get when you die, so hurry up and die or just give it to me now. Impacts the whole family by that, by the way, because it's not like that's a bank account. It's land. So where the family has been living, how they live, what they have gets divided, and this son goes. Now, we always think about this crazy wayward son that needs to be brought back, but there's two lost sons in the story, and this is everything that Jesus is talking about here. After that son spends everything, has humiliated the father. He's like, he doesn't really repent, you guys. He, it doesn't say that. He's like, wow, pig, you know, 
the animals and the people that work in my father's house eat better than I'm eating right now, I should just go home. So he like kind of weighs his options, right? Um, so he goes home, he comes to his senses, sort of, right? And then he, he practices a little speech. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your servants. But while he gets up and he goes to his father, but while he's still a long way off, far, far, far away, the father sees him, which shows you the heart of the father, right? The father's been watching, looking, waiting, waiting, anticipating the day when this son will come home. And the father sees him, is filled with compassion for him, and runs to the son. Very undignified in the Middle East. You don't see men running. Threw his arms around him, kisses him. And the Greek has got this, like, can't stop kissing him. And the son says to the father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's trying to get out this little speech, which, by the way, is the speech that Pharaoh gives when he is insincerely repenting because he's tired of the curse. Jesus is brilliant. I have rabbi friends who say this is one of the most brilliant parables they've ever read, and there's like 4,000 parables to read, so it's something. Um, And the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe to put on him, put a ring on his finger so he's ready to be part of the household again, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf. So he's been waiting. He's been fattening a calf for this moment, the anticipation that he will get to bring his son home and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found, so they began to celebrate. Now, this son has completely rejected his father, rejected his family, just basically said, I wish you were dead. And yet the father meets that type of complete and total unqualified rejection with an unqualified acceptance. That father just runs and says, I don't care how you have been a sinner. I don't care how far off you've gone. I don't care how dirty and stinky you smell like pigs. I don't care where you've been. I am thrilled you're home. I'm going to run and grab you and bring you in, bring you home. I'm going to set the tone for the whole village to welcome you. Because that son's not just coming home to his father, right? That son's coming home to everybody else too. And if you've ever had that type of shame where you have to walk back into your community and be like, man, I messed up. And you feel like you've got sideways glances from every direction. This father runs ahead of every sideways glance. It's like, this, everybody watch. This is how we bring people back. This is how we welcome them home. This is what this is going to look like. You don't get to do any less than what I am doing for my son. You pick him up, you can't stop kissing him, and you bring him in. That's what we do. And guess what? I'm throwing myself the party. Because this is a parable that comes in three parts. The party is not for the sheep. The party is not for the coin. And the party is not for the son. The party is for the father. Meanwhile, the older son, who's also lost, is in the field. And when he comes into the house, he hears the party and the dancing. Hey, your brothers come back. Your father killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother's angry, refuses to go in, stands outside. I'm not going in. This is embarrassing. This is an assault to everything we hold dear. I mean, I've been here every single day, right? And he, so guess what? He's lost and he's outside. So what does the father do? He goes out, right? Are you angry that somebody else is coming in? Are you angry that God is delighting in somebody else drawing near? God will come to you too. So he goes out and he pleads with him. 
But the son answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, by the way, this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, which that does not say that in the story, he's made an assumption, comes home, you killed a fatted calf for him. And my son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I love is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, not my son, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Because, you see, for many of us, grace is not just amazing, it is unbelievable. For many of us, we can't stand this type of love and generosity and pursuit of the Father. We can't stand this radical welcome. For many of us, we are just too uncomfortable with this type of welcome. This is not sitting well. Now, note that Jesus doesn't tell us what the son's response is. Because this is being told to people who said, how dare you eat with these people? Let me tell you a story. I don't just eat with them, I party. (laughs) I'm not just going to share a meal with them, I'm going to celebrate and party, and it's not for them, it's for me, because they're home. And you can feel the invitation as then he turns to those criticizing who he's sitting and eating with. And you can feel it. It's the end of the story and he, he leaves it unsolved because it's, do you want to come in? I've told you this whole story because I want you to come in. I want you here just as much as I want them here. This isn't one over the other. It's all in. Now, Ken Bailey says that a parable is not a delivery system for an idea. Rather, it's a house in which the listener is invited to dwell. You see, Jesus has brilliantly created this experience in which he's inviting all of us to dwell. What do you do when the Gentiles show up? What do you do when the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes show up? What do you do when your family members show up? Because in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a radical welcome. And Jesus looks into his ministry, his life, his world, and he's like, all are welcome to the table. All are welcome at my table. Religious, non-religious, you are welcome. Righteous, unrighteous, you are welcome. Obedient, disobedient, you are welcome. You are loved, you are pursued, you are desired. You should come in. But that is really messy. And it is really difficult. And it is really uncomfortable. Particularly when it happens in a family. Now, when I look online and I, like, Google the word family, it all looks so pretty and lovely, right? But for most of us, it's like this. Come see the action. Family fight night. Get in the ring. Because you and I will fight 
more strongly with people within our own faith family, within our own households, than we will with anybody else, right? And I'm speaking from deeply personal recent experience that there are people within my family when they say something, they do something, they take that stand. Man, I am like so upset. I'm ready to go toe-to-toe. Now, any one of you could say the exact same thing. I'd be like, eh. But when my family says it, when my family does it, when my family members take those positions, now we're going to have fight club at the table, right? And you remember like a couple years ago, right before <laughs> the election, they had the Adele song for Hello on Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you remember the sketch, but it was like they would start to talk about politics and it would start to get heated and then they would just reach over and hit the button and then Adele would go, hello. And they'd all start singing no matter where they found like that one thing to bring them in common. Now, we can look back on first century church first century early followers of Jesus, and we can say, well, isn't this silly? I mean, really, Jews and Gentiles just all come in. Really? Is it really that easy? Because I don't think it's that easy. How do you share space? What day do you meet? Do you keep the festivals? Do we keep the festivals? Are you allowed to have a bacon-wrapped shrimp, and do I want my child seeing that? Do I want them to know what types of crazy, weird gods and goddesses are worshipped in your land. Maybe you did that right before you came to my table. I don't know what to do with these Gentiles. I mean, if they'd only just fully convert, we'd be okay. It's messy to share this at the table. And what ends up happening in the rest of this story with Paul in in the book of Acts is that all of it starts a riot. The moment Paul walks into the temple, a riot starts because they think he's bringing Gentiles in. Now, later on, he'll stand before the Sanhedrin and he'll say, I am being persecuted because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is really wise because the Pharisees did and the Sadducees didn't because they were Sadducee because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so he can now divide everybody and get like the riot going and now it deflects. And and maybe that's in part true. But the real thing that caused the riot and the conflict was Gentiles coming in. Because it's messy and it's difficult, even though we're all followers of Jesus in that setting. And Christians today, we still fight about stuff, don't we? People fought this week. And we like to decide who's in and who's out, who we can sit in the row with, who we can't. We want to figure out if you believe it this way, If you dunk, fine. If you sprinkle, you're out. Right? And I was talking to my friend Rabbi Ari this week because we meet and we podcast and we were talking and I was like, oh, this stuff's happening, this conversation's happening in like the larger church at large. And he was like, so? (laughs) And he's Reform. He's Reform Jew. And he was like, why do I care what the Orthodox think about me? I know they're not going to like me. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm worked up because this is a family member. I'm worked up because this is my, this is my community, right? But I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that we disagree on things, right? That's not a shock. Uh, just to be clear, like the group that came out and organized the statement this week regarding LGBTQ, they don't think women can preach. I haven't been in that tribe for a very long time. Like, you know, since I was 13 and I felt the call to be a pastor and people told me I couldn't. 
I don't read any of their writings because I'm not trying to disparage them at all. It's just we just come at it from different ways. I consider them brothers and sisters. We're going to have to sit at the same table together. Jesus is going to throw us all a party, right? It's going to be great because Jesus loves us, period, right? Conditions do not apply whether they think I can preach and teach or not. But I shouldn't be surprised when we disagree on things because we actually have a lot we agree on too. So my dear family member that I'm disagreeing with right now, I'm like, okay, come have dinner at my house. This community inspires me and encourages me and sets me back into the love of Jesus where I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. This one too, me too. You know, Brennan Manning, if you've not read his writings, um, I sat under his teaching several different spiritual retreats, and he would write a lot on the love of God. He was a um, lifelong alcoholic. He struggled with that disease. He was a priest who then left the priesthood, got married, and then because of his alcoholism got divorced again. I mean, just kind of a, a mess of a man, and he would preach this love of Jesus and talk about how Jesus loved him all the time, no matter what. And he would say, my deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I've been doing nothing to earn or to deserve that. When Manning would talk, and we hosted him for a very large event at another church locally, and Kevin was in charge of it all, and as they went to pick up Brendan Manning from the airport, he yelled at them. He yelled at Kevin. He yelled at them. There was like a miscommunication. So this guy who talks about the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus just started the whole relationship with yelling, right? Um, but he operated his deep grace, and everyone was like a little bit, oh, okay, we're a little And they apologized later, and he bought them ice cream. <laughs> so that's what you do for 20-year-olds when you've yelled at them, I guess. Um, Brennan would talk about the love of God, and just, you can just go on YouTube and listen to some of his things, but he would say ultimately that we need to define ourselves radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self, and every other identity is an illusion. That when we know fully that we're the ones that God ran out and picked up and brought home, then we deeply want to extend that love to others, including our family, including those we've perceived as enemies, including all of our neighbors, those like us, those not like us, all of those ways, those are the ways where we are pursuing love. Jesus welcomes us and loves us as we are, not as we should be, because none of us are as we should be. He loves you. He welcomes you. He has a radical welcome for us. And this is what the whole early church is trying to figure out all throughout Acts, how do we radically welcome everyone to this table? It's messy, it's difficult, it's hard. If you felt like you were stuck in some mess and some difficulties this year, welcome to the first century. The thing I told Rabbi Ari this week is I said, listen, here's the thing. I didn't live through the Reformation. I've just read about it. But I'm sure it was deeply painful when Catholics were looking at Protestants and saying, you are not Christian, and Protestants were looking at Catholics and saying, you are not Christian. I'm sure there were families divided over that. It's just that I don't live that way now. And so having to watch our faith community of of followers of Jesus wrestle out these things, sometimes it's really hard and painful. But ultimately, my hope is that we all come to the table. That we continue to choose to err on the side of love. That we double down on love of God, love of others, love of our neighbors as ourselves, love of enemy. But all of this is contingent upon each one of us saying yes, 
to the radical welcome of Jesus. As Jesus looks at you and Jesus looks at me and he says, I love you. Right now, as you are, not as you should be, you don't have to change one thing. You come running right to me. I will bring you in. I will rush to you. I will bring you home. I will serve you a meal. We will sit down and we will share this life together. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all of you, male, female, every one of you, every one of you. No matter your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your orientation, all of you are welcome in this radical love of God because the love of God does not change based upon your behavior or mine, thank God. God just loves you and me, period. That's it. And once we allow ourselves to have our entire life shaped by the radical welcome and love of God, we will find ourselves trying to shape our lives and our world with that love of Jesus. But it comes here first. It's our own experience with Jesus' love for you and me first, and then it pushes out, and we start to shape our world differently. And that's why Gentiles were coming in. And that's why they had hard and difficult conversations and figured out how to share the table. Because their lives were shaped by the radical love of Jesus. And my prayer is that here in this church, no matter where we are in any part of any theological perspective, if this week reading that statement gave you hope, you are welcome here. If this week reading that statement gave you pain, you are welcome here. No matter who you voted for, no matter what policies you like, no matter what passport you carry or don't carry, no matter what papers you have or don't have, you are welcome to the table of Jesus. And the followers of Jesus who declare him to be Messiah and Rabbi, 1 John 4, 6, 2, 6, Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus walked. Listen, this is hard for me. It's easier for me to figure out who's in and out. It really is. It's easier for me to do it. I can do it. I've done it for a long time, and I'm really good at it. But in the person of Jesus, I feel compelled by this radical welcome. And I'm thankful that I'm welcomed in. So now Pastor Mark has communion for us. This is the table of Jesus. You are radically welcomed. All here are welcome to come and partake. What we'd like you to do is if you could just turn into small groups. You don't have to move your chairs. Just turn to one another and have one person in each of your little groups just come and grab a um, glass of grape juice and then a, a little cup of lavash. And would you give one another communion? You do it. You are the lovers of Jesus. You love one another. And you turn to one another and you say to these people in this room, people you agree with and you disagree with, you're frustrated, you're frustrated with me, all of it, right? And we still come back and we eat together as a family, even though we're upset or we're angry or we disagree or we're hurt, we still come back to the table and we eat because Jesus showed us how to do that. Jesus, we bless you, God, for this afternoon, and we bless you for your word. May we continue to be um, scandalized by your grace, 
by your invitation to each one of us to draw near. May we be deeply transformed and changed because of your love. May our lives be lived out in radical obedience to you, to your commands to love, to obey, and to be deeply changed, to be agents to bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we love you imperfectly. We experience your love, just a fraction of it. But we ask for so much more, Jesus. May the love of God pour out on this church, on this community, on our town, on our cities, on our nation, on every person in this world. May your love overwhelm us, our every breath and step. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.